to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. I'm really excited about my next guest. He's someone who I have gotten to know through our mutual, one of our mutual academic societies, the Society for Pentecostal Studies. I've gotten to know from reading so much of his work. In fact, I have his bio pulled up. It's way too long. His books, there's too many of them to even note, uh, to note because we'd be at the end of the podcast by the time I finished uh, getting there. But I'm very excited to have Dr. John Christopher Thomas with me today. Dr. Thomas, thanks so much for joining. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Ross. Uh, let me be one of the first. Uh, yeah, you absolutely. You're definitely the first on the podcast. That's for sure. <laughs> thank uh, that's you. A, that's a monumental thing to celebrate, and uh, uh, so congratulations on coming through all that well. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, I don't know if it's really sunk in yet, since it's literally yesterday. Uh, it's happened, but I'll feel better when I guess I get my, what I've been told is a small list of corrections and I can get those done and, there you and, go. and finally put everything to rest over there. Well, but, if they're asking for a small list of corrections, that means they own it all now. So that's, that's, a good <laughs> yes, it is true. Well, uh, just for my audience, I, I do want to let people know, Dr. Thomas, he is the Clarence J. Abbott Professor of Biblical Studies at the Pentecostal Theological Seminary. He is the still the editor of the CPT Press, correct? All right, perfect. Uh, again, there's too much. He he's gotten a, a lot of degrees. One of them being at uh, Ashland Theological Seminary, which I serve at the university there. Uh, was named an a alumni of the year. Um, I think it was in '92. You got that. Um, and then, like I said, has written more texts that are monumental for Pentecostal scholarship. Uh, I don't want to say than anyone, but you are you are there in the top escalon of the reasons why Pentecostals have a good foundation for being academic. Um, I think even in my dissertation, I note how the rise of Pentecostal scholarship really started with people like you and a few others who really kind of helped shepherd in an age of true kind of Pentecostal scholarship. So thank you so much again for being here. And uh, I did not do any justice to your bio, but if you wouldn't mind letting people know anything more about you, anything about your academic journey or life, whatever it is, uh, before we get into our topic for today. Well, sure. Um, well, I was uh, born and raised in Pentecostal church um, at a time when Pentecostals were were pretty low on the food chain, uh, <laughs> right. and um, so always always aware of social dynamics, etc. Uh, lived in most of my life in uh, East Tennessee. Um, have been part of um, the Woodward Church of God. It's on Woodward Avenue in Athens, Tennessee. Uh, since about 73 off and on, and since 81 have been an associate pastor there, uh, part-time, 
I'm a direct, the director of the Center for Pentecostal and Charismatic Studies in Bangor, uh, Wales, at Bangor University. Uh, and I supervise PhD theses, mainly in North America, but I've got some folk in Europe and Ireland and or Northern Ireland uh, in particular. I've been at the seminary uh, more or less full-time since 82 and uh, was in on the ground floor of the conception and founding of the Journal of, of Pentecostal Theology and the supplement series uh, of monographs, uh, as well as then eventually the Center for, for Pentecostal Theology, a sort of a very modest um, Tyndale House attempt for our tradition, residential mm -hmm. library. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, uh, Mary, two daughters, three grandkids, uh, two sons-in-law. So, so there we are. Well, uh, you know, again, not to make light of your, your bio, but you know, without you and a few others, what we have for Pentecostal theology and studies and biblical studies just wouldn't exist. So I, I'm, I'm saying that as me to just to let people know how, you know, I don't want to say fanboying, but in some sense, I'm being a fanboy now on this podcast, even though we, we talk whenever we see each other and, and, you know, everything, it still is such an honor to have a conversation. Well, you're, you're way too kind. Um, uh, but I mean, uh, when when some of us came along it was a different world right um uh, gordon fee hadn't written any commentaries wow yeah uh there was no dictionary of the pentecostal and charismatic movements there was nothing really i remember when vince simon's history of the holiness pentecostal movement came out hmm. i remember when stanley horton what the bible says about the holy spirit was right when it when it appeared so i mean it was it was really in lots of ways a really barren time in terms of having uh any clear sort of role models who were doing pentecostal academic theology yeah uh, and so it, it was quite different and, and having a sort of a front row seat to history uh, has been an, an, uh, a, a pleasurable experience, uh, <laughs> despite all the growing pains. And mm. of course, we've got, you know, so many people now who are finding their way and are making uh, extraordinary contributions. So it's been a, it's been a sight to see. Yeah. Well, what, one of the areas that I feel that you've helped usher, that Pentecostals have been picking up now, is a lot of study on John, uh, and the various ways that John can be studied. And I, you know, before the podcast talk about, you know, the whole John, the revelator versus John, the apostle and, and all of that. But that aside, the actual study of, of kind of Johannine literature, what does it mean for Pentecostals and how it is so distinct and unique to study John for Pentecostals because of John's, uh, proclivity about spirit language that, was often missed before kind of Pentecostals really started picking up the charge. And so today we're talking about, at least to start, uh, Revelation and John the Revelator. And uh, 
I mean, I'm just going to open up with a really big question. And that question is, you know, in light of the left behinds, in light of the anything that, that, you know, people are confused about in reading this text or whatever it is, what, what is it that you feel, especially with your text, and I think about others like Melissa Archer and even Robbie Waddell who have written their own works on Revelation, and Frank Macchia who, who also worked with you on the most recent one that you've done on Revelation. Uh, what is it that Pentecostals have to say that's, that's different, that's unique about this text that is helpful in understanding what John is doing? And not just the kind of typical historical critical, maybe we just got it wrong and John's more grounded in in his day than we often think he is. Yeah, well, that's a, uh, that's, that's a great question. I suppose, you know, my PhD thesis was on the foot washing text, which uh, landed me an invitation to come and speak at a conference at Ashland Seminary years ago. Hmm. I was quite honored by that, given all the foot washers around that could have done, uh, could have done a, an amazing job with it. Uh, and uh, so I, I really fell in love with the fourth gospel. I would wind up writing a commentary on first, second, and third John. And a number of years ago, I began to feel drawn uh, to the apocalypse. Now, I should probably say that it's been my blessing over the years um, that all of my major research projects, I have felt a sense of leading from the spirit to undertake. And so for me, I mean, you're, you're conscious, of course, of various sorts of pressures, I suppose, but for me, they've really been kind of uh, labors of love. Yeah. When, I, when I first had the sense that I was going to make my way to the apocalypse, I remember not being able to say that out loud to anybody. <laughs> right. Uh, because uh, the apocalypse is such a, is such a lightning rod. And it, it's always interesting that people can get so draconian in their discipline uh, based on texts that are really difficult to be certain about. Right. And so anyway, and just to clarify, just to clarify that, like maybe for some, like clarify what you mean by that, that some people are so draconian in their readings of that. Well, just that. Um, certain eschatological views take on take on a real rigid sort of interpretation that people can rather it seems easily be, be placed inside and outside mm. appropriate camps yeah like and, you're, you're left behind or you're not left behind. You're, yeah, that's right. Because none of this is happening. It's all allegorical or it all has to be 100% real, right? That's right. And then if, you, if you're not left behind, you've been left behind. <laughs> right. You know, that, that language a little bit. Uh, so I remember uh, I was in London. I was reading the last bits of Max Turner's Power from on High mm -hmm. for publishing. 
and Max and I had gone on a walk and uh, he said, I need to talk to you about this new commentary series we're editing and would really like for you to do one of the volumes. We, he basically said, we need a Pentecostal in the series. And I said, well, that's, you know, that's, that's nice. And so I began to tell him that I felt like I was being drawn to the apocalypse next. And Max, who's a charismatic uh, Anglican, uh, eventually said, well, that's all well and good, but we want you to write on the Johannine epistles. <laughs> and I said, well, Max, I've just written on the epistles. And um, he said, well, no, we really want you to do that. So I, I prayed about it. I talked to folk about it in my community, and they felt like, well, maybe this would be a good thing for the tradition so I signed the contract uh, for the Two Horizons volume. And about six months in, I get a, a letter from Joel Green and Max Turner, who were the editors. And I believe Joel said something like, well, our, our contributor on the apocalypse has had to drop out. Would you uh, hmm. consider writing the volume on the apocalypse? And so uh i immediately responded a little bit after that frank machia was in town uh giving some lectures at the seminary i believe and coming up to our church on a wednesday night and i was teaching a seminar called the theology of the the, the book of revelation as a way of kind of getting up and running and yeah. we were reading um richard balcom's uh theology of the book of revelation which is just great. And Frank sat in with us and we really, Frank and I are really tight anyway. Mm -hmm. And it was a great moment. Uh, we we're kind of sealing it off in time of worship together and our, at, at the church that night. And then all the congregation came around and, and we laid hands on Frank uh, for his scholarship in particular which I think that prayer has been answered. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think so. Scholarship. Um, and so it kind of began there. Now, I may be giving you a much longer answer than you want, but in Pentecost, whoever's got the microphone's got it. <laughs> it's your mic. Uh, and so, um, you know, studying the apocalypse was a lot like finding a new book in the Bible because it had been, you know, it had been taken over, it seems, by a certain script yeah. that got laid down over the top of the, of the book. And um, so it was a new discovery around every bend. I mean, when I say I didn't know what was coming next, I really didn't know what was coming next. Yeah, my own, my, my own approach is in reading texts is to read them narratively, theologically. And so the text that comes later is informed by what we've already been through. Right. There was very little of that on the apocalypse and very little, well, some on the pneumatology, uh, but even something like the structure the four in the spirit phrases. Uh, John was in the spirit uh, on the Lord's day. Yeah. John was in the spirit 
in heaven. He was in the spirit on a mountain. He was in the, or in the wilderness. He was in the spirit on a mountain. And of course, most Pentecostals didn't even know there was a spirit in the book of Revelation. Right. Because the script was so dominant. Yeah. And so I think one of the things that Pentecostals have brought to the book uh, is this real this this real desire to engage this text that's very prophetic uh quite apocalyptic uh very pneumatic and there has been a bit of a renaissance amongst pentecostals as you mentioned writing on the apocalypse rob waddell really was the first to sink his teeth into it did a phd at sheffield i was one of his uh, uh, joint supervisors, and I remember when I started on the, uh, the the commentary, I I asked Rob. I said, "Well, what advice have you got for me?" <laughs> he had written it up, and then of course, Melissa Archer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would work with her. Uh, David Johnson on the pneumatic discernment in the apocalypse. Got a couple of students now working on different dimensions of the apocalypse. Um, faithful witness uh in particular kind of odyssey so i think pentecostals i think pentecostals view things differently worldwide worldview wise and i think our engagement with the text while overlapping with a lot of other readers on the other hand will have some distinctive ways of engaging yeah like like to to talk about that overlay right i mean i grew up in the church of god my my father's still a church of god bishop um and so i grew up very much in the church of god with that overlaid text of it is this one thing it's a it's a dispensational eschatological view right it's it's left behind but post-trib right like i mean it was it was yeah you you we have this terrible kind of uh, three and a half years of seven year tribulation period. And everyone's going to be there. We're all going to go through it. And then Jesus is going to return. And that's how you read it. That's, that's the, the roadmap for reading it. And, and you actually get to see everything that's happening. And you make this statement, and, and this is where I kind of want to go next, that you're wanting to read it narratively and see what comes from the text that way, which, which, for some listeners who may not know, right? I mean, there's there's different approaches to reading scripture. You've got historical critical ways. You've got uh, kind of Bible reading method ways, which has become kind of more popular again, especially amongst evangelicals and these devotional readings. But but kind of maybe explain a little bit what you mean by kind of a narr- narratival, a narrative reading of of revelation and how that can actually help because i think most people when they think about revelation they just think of these succinct passages this letter to the churches right the seven churches and then all this kind of weird stuff in between and then here's the future stuff of heaven right like and it's really hard sometimes to think about how is it how is this a narrative how do we think about it that way right um well a lot of the you know a lot of work that's been done on the apocalypse is kind of from a historical critical vantage point uh, which spends a lot of time rummaging around in background materials, whether that all pans out or not. There are a lot of different reading methods these days. 
I have become convinced that rather than looking for the intentions of the author or some historical backdrop to create so that I can then read the text over against it. Right. That the best way to approach it is to allow the text through what it says to construct the readers. And by that, I mean that we understand the text as the text unfolds and defines itself. So mm. maybe one example uh, would, would help here. Uh, you have um, following the seven prophetic messages of Jesus to the seven churches, uh, you have this second in the spirit phrase, John is in the spirit in heaven. And you get this scene of the 24 elders. Now, interpretive history is filled with all kinds of proposals on who the 24 elders are. But uh, if you are drawing on the text in chapter four, the 24 elders look remarkably like the overcomers who are described in the seven prophetic messages of Jesus. Hmm. So you can argue about, well, it's this prophetic or this priestly line or what have you, but the text itself seems to be pointing in one direction. Yeah. And so allowing the text uh, to define things for us and to experience the text in that way. Uh, and so, so for me, uh, the text and I'm sure a lot of people would want to say this, but for, to me, the text defines its own message. Yeah. And as a reader, I'm trying to honor the text and allow it to construct what literary theory uh, theorists would call the implied readers, the readers implied by the text, and uh, see where that leads us. And it's a very, for me personally, it's been a very kind of liberating experience uh and so when you notice the four in the spirit phrases you discover that these are literary markers among other things around which the text gets divided uh and they're they're clearly in the text unlike a number of structures that are proposed by for the book uh, that are drawing on different dimensions, but are kind of ignoring these major literary features Yeah, in terms of something as simple as structure. Yeah, yeah right. Like, I, I want to actually take a second here and define prophetics, just so people recognize that we're not, you know, you're not talking about it the same way that other people are thinking about prophetic, and here's a telling of the future, and this is what it's going to look like in some tribulation period. But before we get there, you know, that that's a good point, right? This 24, this 24. I, I think it's really important for a lot of people to recognize, I think, the significance of that in what that means in our reading of it, right? To which oftentimes people go to the book of Revelation and they hear this like, okay, 24 elders as John's in the spirit in heaven. And, and they want to quickly identify who they might think those 24 people are 
oftentimes putting it into their own context and their own day to say, here's how I know all these things are about to happen because these 24 are identified as these 24 over here. And we're quick to read the text outside of its own narrative, right? Um, so, so when you're reading it that way, and you're saying, okay, well, look, this 24 is actually very related to these seven churches. What does that do for the meaning? Like, how does that help us understand the unfolding of both that passage and even the previous passages in which we learn of these 24 who are in this, being in the spirit for John in heaven? Yeah, well, I think it, I think by the time you get to four and you encounter the 24, and you see their similarities to those who overcome, they are these kind of this representative of the overcomers. Yeah. Uh, they are attired in ways that are now familiar, uh, et cetera. And so I, I sometimes think about the apocalypse as a kaleidoscope that you can actually enter into and make your way through the kaleidoscope and when you turn around occasionally and look behind you, things that looked one way start to look a different way based on where you are in the journey. Yeah. And you have similar things that what you were describing, Dr. Ross, about the two witnesses. I mean, interpretive history is full of, of identifications, uh, must be Elijah and Enoch because they never died or must be this or that. But such uh, approaches miss what the text actually says. There are two witnesses in conformity to, uh, an, uh, you know, Torah regulations uh, in some ways. They are virtually identical twins you don't have one of them acting like Moses or Elijah and one of them acting like Enoch. They're, right. they're both doing things in which a variety of um, prophetic figures kind of converge in them. They're almost uh, prophets to the second power. And it's similar to the stunning vision of the resurrected Jesus that you find in chapter one, where you have this intertextual convergence of all of these Old Testament details that converge in the resurrected Jesus. Hmm. You have a similar thing like that in the two witnesses. And, and the ambiguity um, suggests that we're not intended to sort out names Right. That's what we do, right? And some people have gone so far to identify themselves as one of them. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Um, but the text itself tells us how these figures are to be interpreted. And so, you know, you can just kind of replicate that all the way through uh, the text. Yeah. And, and maybe I think it's really important, again, leaning towards the reality that Revelation is not a text to be read, again, as some kind of roadmap, as some kind of contextualized, I'm just going to place current figures in and replace these right with their names. But, but I think a lot of that comes to how people understand prophecy and prophetic, that word that you've used multiple times. So when you're saying that, you know, you're reading a prophetic and apocalyptic 
text, right? Which for so many people, when they hear apocalyptic, they're thinking, you know, World War Z or I don't know, uh, The Last of Us, whatever TV show is the current apocalyptic TV show. You're they're thinking that. So maybe for for some of the listeners, maybe define what you mean when you're saying prophetic and apocalyptic as it relates to Revelation. Well, the the book it identifies itself as a word of prophecy. And John clearly functions as a prophet. And when we get to the end of the book, we will find that he has, there's a reference to your brothers, the prophets, hmm. which, which led Rob Waddell to propose for the apocalypse, uh, the prophethood of all believers, kind of matching what Roger Stronstad had said about. Luke yeah. And so, you know, there's prophetic language abounds uh, in the book. Uh, it, and it does, you know, it, it pretends to tell us about what the future will be, but it's not as one of my co colleagues who's gone on to be with the Lord, Hollis Dawes, who, who wrote the first non-dispensational commentary on the book of Revelation by Pentecostal. Huh. I've been able to track down and he kind of, he kind of cleared the table in a lot of ways and, and cleared space for some of us to, to follow along. Uh, Hollis said what we've done, what many people have done, is to make the book of Revelation into a board game. Interesting, uh, yeah. That we're just trying to figure out what's happening next, or that we're looking at this as history written in advance. And while most of us uh, in our tribe would want to say that there are things that are coming in the apocalypse that shed light on on what's what's coming um we're not talking about the apocalypse doesn't seem to talk about it in quite that way right because you know the apocalypse will give us is characterized by things that appear to be cyclical in some ways and yet uh the underlying structure reveals a certain linearness to it. So hmm. you say the seven seals, the seven uh, trumpets, right. seven bowls. Well, in some ways, those seem a bit repetitive, but what, what's going on is uh, with the seals, destruction that comes is like 25% of the earth. And with the trumpets, it's a third. And with the bowls it's complete. Right. You've got this sort of linearness to it and you get a little detail like in chapter four, where we have this vision of God on the throne, the one who sits on the throne, there are these theophanic elements that come forth from the throne. And at the end of each of the sevens, uh, you have theophanic elements um, plus they grow in intensity hmm. by the time you get to the the bowls whereas earlier there may have been hailstones after the trumpets you get hundred pound hailstones hmm. which which despite the cyclical nature drives us propels us forward through right. the narrative and so yeah it's it's prophetic uh from 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 the author's point of view, 
is prophetic in terms of its self-identity. It's prophetic in terms of apparently the community that's envisioned in the text. And there is this invitation uh, for its readers to be participants in this prophetic story. Right. Which I think is is the important part, right? It's it's the invitation into a prophetic, which for that community then meant what was happening then and there, not the way that we think about prophetic often in our churches, something that is to come. Well, I, I think I would put it a bit differently and to say uh, we don't really know the then and there part. Right. And it's ambiguous enough that it invites us all to be interpreting the reality in the light of the text. Hmm. Yeah. No, yeah. I'll give you an example. One of the, the great surprises to people is, is that the word Antichrist never occurs in the book. Right. And I've had people that wanted to fight me about that. <laughs> that I've, I've offended them by saying that. And I'll say, well, show me where it is. And, um, but you do get a lot about the beast. And I think certain uh, approaches, interpretive approaches, have tried to figure out who the beast is. And as a result, we have missed beastly characteristics and attitudes hmm. that are all around us because we're waiting for the beast. Right, right. And so... Does that speak to us as well as it spoke to those at the time of its composition? Um, it seems to me that it can, but we have lots of things that, I mean, we don't seem to necessarily be any better at that than others have been. That's, that's a really interesting point, right? Because again, growing up in my Pentecostal world, right? Let's think about that, the beast, right? Here's all the different signs of what the beast is going to be and how they'll be wounded and, you know, so on and so forth. And, and it was almost a checklist of now we can figure out who this beast is going to be representative as a person. If we can just figure out all these things that happen, boom, we can. So now any politician who ever has an injury to the head immediately becomes suspect number one in the who's the beast, right? No. But what I like, you know, what's interesting about what you're saying and a way of reading, recognizing that the text, you know, the, the way that some people have maybe put it, the text reads us, right? Uh, you put it that way, right? The text reads us is that it, it is a text that that lives in perpetuity to say, actually, whatever that beast is, we can find it within our own world, our own space uh, and those attitudes. Um which now gives the book itself an important reality for today rather than just tomorrow, um, which I think so many people look at it as a text for tomorrow rather than a text for today. After chapter three, of course, or three and four, right? After, those are, sure, those are for today, but after that, we can just look forward to the future. Um, but it's really interesting, and, and not to bring up a uh, political faux pas, but you know, as a, as a kid, uh, growing up in the church, I was always constantly looking, okay, who could be the beast, right? Because that's what I was trained to do in some way in our Pentecostal uh, groups, to read it in a way of saying, okay, let's let's be on the lookout, right, for who it might be. Um, 
And during a certain former president's tenure, there was a really interesting article that stuck with me since where someone took that same kind of attitude, uh, that same kind of reading propensity, and basically said, look, I'm not a dispensational eschatological person. I don't actually think this is meant to be a future-oriented antichrist figure. But what I find interesting is if I take all these passages and I do what I used to do and I apply them to a certain former president, uh, and there's plenty of former presidents, so you know we're not talking about anyone specific, uh, the fact, the, the way it lines up is just maddening, right? Like, it's like, oh my gosh, this could be if I were in that same realm. But I always thought, oh, that's a funny, that's a funny comparison. That's a funny way of like, and not even funny, just an interesting like, oh yeah, look what we could have done with that same thing. But almost to your point, actually we should have, but not as a future antichrist figure tribulations coming when this but as that's the attitude that the book of revelation that john is is warning us to the prophecy of christ that we should be working against uh by being those who overcome by following the lamb who was slain right which is a very important passage or very important phrasing in that text at least i think so um and, and i find that really interesting again because it can actually speak to today where Revelation has often been kind of pegged as a book, like I said, after four chapters, we're just looking, we're going to have a revival service about Jesus coming back tomorrow, and here's what we're looking out for, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think one of some of the interesting things to me is that that sometimes interpreters take the literal things symbolic and the symbolic things literal. Right. <laughs> you know, so you got the seven prophetic messages, well, they obviously must be church ages. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. What's the, what's the clue that these are church ages? It all seems to be relatively straightforward. Yeah. Then when we get into this, this kind of cosmic uh, imagery that we find later in the book, that suddenly has to be interpreted literalistically. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, the it's 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 quite it's quite interesting to me growing up Pentecostal, we would hear various prophecy preachers come through. And I recall ministers who made identifications of who the Antichrist was. And the huh. thing puzzled me, uh, and I wasn't, you know, all that wise, I mean, it kind of just snuck up on me, that um, when they came back around the next year, and it, it was evident that this was not the Antichrist, that there was never anything said about it. Right. No kind of public climbing down and saying, you know, <laughs> got that wrong. Um, and, you know, part of the complication is the text seems to encourage us to be discerning in terms of the beast, um, by giving us the number of the beast, right? Mm. There's wisdom. Uh, we are encouraged to calculate the number. And uh, so it's sort of that you have to be discerning, you're drawn into it on the one hand, and on the other hand, 
it seems that sometimes the things that are right in front of our noses, we don't have the eyes to see. Yeah. Um, as, as you were saying. And, you know, another just kind of maybe throwaway point is in, in 14, you know, you get an angel from heaven shouting out, right? Do not worship the beast. Right. <laughs> you know, so I've, I've sometimes said to, to, to folk in the congregation or in the classroom, you're not going to get the mark of the beast by standing in the wrong line at Walmart. Right. Right. These are conscious decisions and choices people make in terms of whose mark they will bear. And of course, the very first folk to get sealed are people of God in chapter seven. So there is this sense in which the mark of the beast is a counterfeit seal. Hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I grew up, you know, reading the chick tracks and, and being informed at that level in terms of my spirituality uh, <laughs> about, you know, the mark of the beast and the counterfeit church and all of this stuff. But one of the interesting things about 13, where the beast is worshiped, and even a, a hymn is sung to the beast, who is like the beast and who can make war against him. Um, it's not a counterfeit church that's being worshiped. Right. It's military might and economic control. Right. And how did that get past us in the, you know, in the, in the construction of figuring out, figuring out who the beast is. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, what the church seems called to is to offer faithful witness. And that gets reinforced all the way through. And what we find out about the faithful witness in the two witnesses is that they are protected. And I mean, in very dramatic prophetic ways, fire coming from heaven, all kinds of things happening until their witness is complete. And then the beast arises from the abyss and overcomes them. Well, what does that say about faithful witness? That faithful witness is faithful because it's offered, not necessarily because it wins the day. Mm. And that even death hmm. is a faithful witness right. is offered in the face of a hostile world. Yeah. And so I think I think in, instead of, you know, some of the things you see in some of the left behind stuff, which which I I watched all the films because I was doing this uh, <laughs> reception history. I think you got a new one to watch coming out at some point in the future. I'm retired. Uh, <laughs> I was surprised at how little of the book of Revelation was in the book and in the films and how little um, and how that Christian ethical activity seem to not really matter anymore yeah these had to be opposed in all these ways that i've been taught growing up is a violation of god's will yeah that narrative then begins to control the text rather than the straightforward reading of the text let me just tell you one other little tidbit i 
I was teaching the course we uh, on on the book Revelation, and we were reading Richard Balcom's uh, Climax of Prophecy, and we were on the chapter. I think it's entitled something like the Economic Critique of Rome, in hmm. in uh, Revelation seventeen. Where do you get this? And or, or eighteen? Where do you get this list of cargoes? Right. Uh, that come from all over the world uh, to to um, the great whore. And so we had a student from uh, Uzbekistan and I asked him to kick off our discussion. And he said, uh, uh, this chapter reminded me of America. Ah. And, and hear all these gasps. Oh yeah. <gasps> well, how could you say that? And I said, well, will you help us tell, tell us about why you made that identification. He said, because all the goods from all the world wind up here. Huh. And so, you know, he's, he's engaging in this text in ways others in the class couldn't engage with the text. Right. Because we all bring our, our kind of blinders and our preconditioning to the text. But if, if our encounter with the text doesn't change us, it seems to me that there's no point in reading the text. Yeah. Not converting. That's, I mean, it's, it's always fascinating for me to hear about those who read the text from outside of the kind of a Western context, because we find such uniquenesses, especially kind of finger pointing, not in a, not in a year at fault, but a finger pointing back towards the U S oftentimes in, in, in ways that would scandalize Americans to understand that others are thinking of the text. And yeah, yeah. I, I have a friend who was uh, from uh, the far East and, and he was appalled by things that go on in, a, in and around Halloween and, 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 and good, good critiques. But when, when I inquired about funerals that seemed to verge on ancestor worship, uh, he didn't see that in his own right. culture. And I think sometimes that, you know, folk in the U.S., we really miss stuff. But I think sometimes there's this expectation that nobody else misses anything. I mean, mm. it, it, we're all in that yeah. boat. Uh, and we all have an opportunity for the text to speak to us. Well, and, and to that to the language, right? For those who have eyes to see and those who have ears to hear. I mean, that that's it, right? That's right. I mean, thus we also need the context of others to help us see our blind spots. And the I can get real tillic here for a second, and I won't, because uh, I'm done with that for the time being. Um, but but to your point, I, I think it's- I actually studied tillic at Ashland. Did you? Look at that. The courage to Oh, rolling into the dynamics of faith, which I wrote a whole way too many pages on both those two texts. Um, now, it's interesting that you say that when you talk about military might, economic power, right, being kind of like two of the, the greatest, I don't know, evils, symbols of evil within, within the text, right, uh, of Revelation. And, and to your point, you know, there's this kind of reality that we often in the church use the very things that we're supposed to be wary of and actually pushing back because we think that's the way 
to win when all the while in the book of Revelation, we keep coming back to those who overcome following the lamb who was slain. It's so clear narratively, right, that the, that the understanding of overcoming is by following the very person who was put to death by those who had those things and didn't try to use those things to in turn overcome them. And yet somehow we, we get lost in that. We just immediately, because it's illogical, how do you win by, by, by losing, right? How do you win right. by not using those things that we, it's like, we just can't see it, right? We just escape it. Uh, to me, that's one of the most beautiful things of Revelation, but it's also one of the hardest and it's the one that w no one likes, right? Because we, we realize, well, it means not economic power, not military might, and we're overcoming some other way. Yeah, and, and, you know, throughout the prophetic messages and throughout the narrative, um, the dangers of um, economic seduction are underscored. It's not like there's, you know, that money is evil. It's that there are seductions involved in all of this. And then, of course, the ongoing, uh, the ongoing theme of power and, you know, Satan has a throne but read in the light of the one who sits on the throne, you understand that his power is inferior. And yet you see the seduction of that power. Yeah. That manifests in, you know, the dragon, the beast and the second beast, uh, who seem to, uh, be a parody of the Trinity. Uh, huh. David Johnson, uh, whom we've mentioned earlier, has just done a, a piece where he, uh, I think it was, I think this one was in New Testament studies, very, you know, uh, leady biblical studies journal, in which he tries to reverse engineer what we can learn about the nature of God by re, uh, reverse engineering the parody of the dragon oh, interesting. and the second beast. Yeah. yeah. And so that what does, you know, because I'm, I'm careful in not reading in trying not to be anachronistic theologically and reading things back into the text, but you've got something that's internal in the text that seems to be revelatory of what it is a, a parody of. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, I, the, the text is, and I, I should tell you this, uh, Dr. Ross, that, um, you know, I, I grew up in a world of charts and, <laughs> and I really, you know, I was really impressed with them. And so I was done with charts when I started working on my commentary. And as I was reading Richard Balcom's magnificent chapter on the literary structure of the book of Revelation, I was at, at Tyndall House. I remember this distinctly, and it's so intricate that I had to make a chart. <laughs> it's, it's, I am not an implied reader who has, you know, total recall. Uh, right. I never have total recall, 
but just to kind of keep all the news straight, it, it, it's, it's a phenomenally structured literary document uh, that, that makes people think that it must have taken years to come up with, and yet the text uh, claims to be uh, a visionary experience. Yeah. Has all these intertexts in it. So at least you grew up I'm in a more sorry, sophisticated. If I'm, not, if, if I'm getting into the ditches here. Uh, no, no, no. Your questions. I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm, you know, always going to be impressed because you still grew up in a more sophisticated time having charts because you had charts and I had flannel boards. <laughs> so oh, my book of Revelation was flannel board. <laughs> I remember the flannel boards. Well, we didn't own a chart. I mean, we just saw the big ones that came in. With <laughs> I, I have a I, I have a question now that this is just me. Like in my own reading of Revelation, it was a, a surprise to me, right? And, and this is going back to that. Okay, reading it literally versus reading it maybe analogically or now talking about reading it narratively and how we have these kind of differences that, you know, again, growing up in any, any Pentecostal church, but I would say any kind of evangelical church that was minded towards this apocalyptic uh, potential eschatological future, you know, Revelation 21 is always plastered as this is the picture of heaven, right? And, and usually because of that economic seduction, right? Look at all the nice shiny things we're going to have and how gold streets and everything. It's, it's all the things that we think of as, 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 as good as rather than this kind of like complete and utter understanding of the economic world being flipped on its head, that these things that had value don't have value and so on and so forth. But the, the, the verse that I don't, that stuck out to me. And this was just a couple years ago reading this. And it's one of those verses that I probably marked and said, I want to understand this verse better. And it's been on my mind, but I've just never done the work because, you know, there was some other kind of work I was doing. Right. Uh, but, you know, in Revelation 21, we get this picture of this new heaven, this new Jerusalem coming down, so on and so forth. But there's a really interesting verse, which is verse 24 that after all this, right, after all this kind of apocalyptic battle, uh, after all this, this all, all those are going to be kind of cast away. And we get this verse that says, the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And it's confusing, right? Because if, if my chart mindset works the dispensational eschatological chart mindset, there's no one else at this point, right? Like, it's just those who have now been, uh, you know, taken up into heaven, and now we're being put back down to this new earth. And of course, I grew up in, a, in the Pentecostal recognition that the earth we currently have gets blown up, and then we get a brand new one, not this one gets redeemed, you know, that's a whole other problem to deal with. But, you know, I don't know, I, I, I don't know how to locate that. I, I clearly in a literal reading, I can't locate it. But even in an analogical reading, I'm still struggling to to locate it. And then a narrative reading, I, you've got to tell me. <laughs> I'm out. Well, no. Um, well, a couple of things. One is it appears that the Earth itself gets redeemed in the millennium. Right. 
and the, the millennium is very bare bones. You know, we have these millennial constructions, but in our constructions, we're drawing on Isianic texts, other kinds of texts. When we get to Revelation 20, it's, it's basically that these folk are with Jesus for a thousand years. With yeah. Jesus is the emphasis, right? And then there's Gog and Magog, which throws off this script, right? Because that's supposed to be earlier. Right. Um, and then everything vanishes. It's just, it's just <laughs> right. the one on the throne, right? Which says that our conceptions of heaven through that point are what we think about as heaven. Um, but apparently, and I sometimes will say this at, at funerals in particular, where I talk about the person's past and their present, and I draw on those, you know, four and five, Revelation four and five. Yeah. And then I say, but this person has a future because even the future has a future. Hmm. And then we look at the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, new earth. Now, the, the key thing, it seems to me, uh, Dr. Ross, is that um, the new heaven and new earth, there's no longer any need for mediation. Right. Everything's immediate. The, the God and the lamb is the temple. It breaks apart right. my grammar there with the, the compound subjects and the singular verb. Uh, and then you get this text where God is speaking to the overcomers and he says, and I will be to them God and he will be to me, Quias, son. Well, in the Johannine literature, believers are never spoken of as the son, hmm. only one son. Right. And it's very consistent. Believers can be techna, paideia, we can be children. But in this moment of immediacy, the overcomer is now called what Jesus is called. Hmm. And when I read that, I was sitting right here in my study, and I may have been using this Greek text. <laughs> And I remember my eyes popping out of my head like a cartoon character <laughs> because it was so out of keeping. Now, I say all of that to say, right. I mean, I don't ever recall even hearing that the kings of the earth will be present in the New Jerusalem. Right. I don't think there was a place for that. No. And in Revelation, the kings of the earth, except for one other place are never spoken of positively right and yet here they are now some people want to argue that and and my friend richard balkum kind of argues this that in the end the grace is so abundant that it's a sort of a form of universalism hmm and this is the, the kind of the sign of that. But, but the problem is in these very texts, there are two lists 
of folks who don't make it in. So it's not like everybody's getting in the New Jerusalem. Right? There will be two distinct lists, and yet the kings of the earth do. Right. So what's happened? Well, I have another friend named Craig Kester, who's written on uh, the Anchor Bible volume on Revelation, and Craig's you know, is brilliant, as is Richard. Craig kind of wants to toy around with the idea of writing your own ending. Uh -huh. huh. Um, but it seems to me what's going on is that this is a sign that the results of the faithful witnesses has been far more successful than they ever imagined it would be. That those for whom we've not been given any indication that they respond in faith, they must have because yeah. they're there. And so it seems to me that that kind of understanding holds all those tensions together that the text creates. And so to have the kings of the earth bringing in the glories of the nations, it's, I take it as promissory that their witness has been successful, even though there are very few uh, suggestions in the text that the kings of the earth have believed the testimony. Yeah, and it's really interesting because it comes right after this recognition of you know the light of God, right? This this there would be no no night because. God is this is his own light right into this world. So it's a really interesting kind of culmination of what that means, uh, which is why sometimes Bachum can make sense in that, but then also where you have to hold it in tension to other passages, right? Like uh, it's a very interesting, unique passage that I, I don't know. It just, it's, it's almost put in there in a way that makes you stop and go, wait a second. That's exactly right. And I think it, I think it resists, easy explanation i think it creates a tension within us as readers and often i think when a text is troubling to us what we need to pay attention to is why it's troubling not trying yeah. to gain mastery over the text so we feel better yeah but like what is it about that text that that is getting this response out of yeah it? that messes like, with me know, right yeah the parable where jesus seems to uh, compliment an unethical businessman. Well, right. we're busy saving Jesus from it, right? From from that faux pas. Uh, and and maybe what it's doing is doing something inside of us. The, the other, to me, the other great one is uh, the Syrophoenician woman, and we're so busy trying to defend Jesus about calling her a dog that we mystify that in Mark. The disciples don't understand about the bread. The disciples forget about the bread. The disciples mm. don't understand. And in the midst of all of that is this woman who gets it. Yeah. Even the crumbs. Yeah. That is important, right? And so, so I think that, I think our desire to, to master the text 
can keep us from actually responding to the text. Mm. And that's, and for those of us who've, who kind of figure out that we know how this is all going to wrap up. <laughs> right. Well, that's, that's not supposed to be there. Right. And yet it is. And it, then it makes you wonder, okay, so are the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations? Is that salvific healing? Yeah. Well? I mean, in John's gospel, all the, the signs of healing are complete. They bring, they accompany eternal life. Yeah. Is that what we're getting now at the end and we get all that eternal life language? I mean, it's, uh, it's such a great book. Yeah. <laughs> and this, this is what I've tried to explain, especially to some students, particularly students that grew up in the church, um, how a reading to master the text, kind of use your language, makes the text so boring. And and I've I, I tried to try to explain that in a way of saying, you know, I grew up in the church, grew up a pastor's kid and went to Christian university, did my Bible degrees, right, and so on and so forth. And and all it ever I don't want to say all it ever did, but a, a, a big product of it was I I became really bored of the text because mm. I knew it and I could recite much of it and I could tell you where everything was. And, and it wasn't until I started hitting some of these texts that all of a sudden I realized there's so much more to this in unique ways that I wasn't ready for. Yeah. Right. Like I'm yeah. still not ready for the Matthew text of people being raised from the dead when Jesus died. Like, yeah, I love that text. Me I don't too. Understand it, but I love it. <laughs> exactly. I don't. I don't understand it. And I'm and I'm okay with not mastering it, but rather recognizing this is a weird, you know, to use Scott McKnight's language, blue parakeet, right within the text that again causes us to stop and go, wait a second, just like this revelation text or the uh, other one I love is where they throw the the dead soldier in on the bones of the prophet and he comes back to life. <laughs> right. Like Man, I love that text. I, I have no idea what to do with it, but I love it. Well, and, and they resist easy yeah. codification, doctrinal creation, theological, systematizing. Like it, it, it resists it, which is something that we desperately need because I feel so very often people read the text purely to you know, read to retrieve, right? Purely just to get the quick meaning out of it. How do I apply it? Now I can move on from my day. Not so much. How do I sit with this? Yeah, and kind of bathe in the text, right? Or right. be bathed by the text. I think yeah. that's right. Yeah, that was, that's that's my feeling. Yeah. Well, on that, uh, because I'm sure we could really start messing with people here soon and start throwing out some even more of these uh, and why they're so crazy. Uh, I, I want to thank you for your time. Um for doing this with me. It's been uh, wonderful for me. I hopefully, I believe with my listeners as well. So thank you, Dr. Thomas, for joining. And thank you, Dr. Ross. Great to be your first guest on this side of the doctoral degree. Yeah, I, I'm very glad you were, you were my first guest on this side of it. Uh, it's been, a, it's been a wonderful time and I'm not a biblical studies person, so I love it. Uh, still love it because you know, theology and all that kind of stuff, you know, it gets, it gets boring too. 
We should we should not uh, pretend it's the most fascinating all the time. <laughs> Let me just tell you one more story before we go. Yeah, uh, Frank Machia and I would uh, you know would be reading each other's stuff, and I would eventually say for for your listeners who don't know Frank, he's an Italian Pentecostal guy. He's got this huge laugh. Boom. <laughs> yeah. And I would say I would come across something, and I would say, Frankie, you can't say that. And he'll say, Why? And I'd say, because that's not what the text says. And he'd inevitably say, oh, man, <laughs> a text get in the way of a good theological point. <laughs> but Frank, in all fairness, is an excellent reader of texts. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, that's amazing. Well, before I let you go, yep. uh, where can people find your, your books? How can they read more from what you've done? I mean, this book we've talked about is Revelation, the Two, two Horizons commentary series, right? So... Um, but any, anywhere else they can find your work or follow along with what you're doing? Uh, Amazon um, would carry everything. There's actually, I have two versions of the Apocalypse commentary. One is the Revelation commentary that Frank and I wrote together. The other one is simply called the Apocalypse, which in my comment is 90,000 words longer than the Two oh, Horizons uh, series. And when we got down to the end, and I was told how much I had to cut, I basically said, in part because I felt the Lord had led me to it, you know, I'm good. I don't have to do that. Uh, and you can get somebody else to, to write uh, because I feel like I've done <clears throat> what I was supposed to do. And they said, no, 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 we, we, we really need you to do this. And so we worked out a deal where CPT Press did the fuller commentary. Oh, okay. And then... Um, the the Erdmans did the relatively abbreviated version, though you get those wonderful <laughs> essays of Frank's uh, in the two of Uh, I I did not know that. I need to go get that text then. Of course, I just missed my chance at SPS for my discount. But ninety thousand words is a lot of words. Oh, oh no, I know because that's basically my dissertation <laughs> added on. That's right. That's right. Well. Dr. Thomas, thank you again so much. Uh, I hope to have you back sometime in the future. And, you know, thanks for coming on. You're very welcome. Thank you.